Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening and welcome to the Rashi Shear. We are talking in Parsha Chaye Sarah, Peirat Kafdalet, which is the mission of Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak. And we're still in the middle of Pasuk Chet, so Peret Kaftalat Pasuk Chet, um, where Abraham says to Eliezer, having stressed that it's important that the wife comes from where Eliezer is going, which is Haran, comes back to Israel where Yitzchak is and not the other way around. And Abraham says in Pasuk Chet, and if the woman does not want to come after you, you will be exempt from this oath that you're now taking. And then he says, Only my son do not return there. So last week we talked about the first part of Rashi on that pasuk. Now we'll talk about the second on the words, says Rashi, the word rak is a limitation. So what he means is, we're going to expound the word rak here like we do in halachic parts of the Torah, um, wherever it says ach or it says rak, which are both translated as only or something to that effect. Along come chazal in their way of learning the sukkim, and they say when you see a rak or when you see an ach, those two words, it means this and not for something else. That's how we, the word rak is a sort of code word to say this and not for something else. So rak et bani means it applies to my bani, my son, but it doesn't apply to something else. So says Rashi, rak miyotu, bani eino chozer, my son does not return, which is an interesting way of saying go to Haran. Aval Yaakov ben bani sofo lachazor, but Yaakov, my grandson, in the eventually he will return, i.e. he will go to Haran, as we know he does. He goes to Haran, he finds not just one wife, but can I know four wives, um, and then he comes back. So, a few things to say. One, it's interesting that the expression is Bani Eino Chozer, my son will not return. Why is that a little bit odd? Because he never went there in the first place. So maybe my son is an extension of me, of Abraham. So I've come from there. We talk about it. We talk about this in a transgenerational way. You know, we came from Poland. Will we go back to Poland? So Abraham comes from Haran. My son will not go back to Haran. But a bigger question is, is what's the point here? So I saw something quite, I have to say, a bit cute, that um, maybe this is part of the message that Eliezer has got to give to the prospective Mechotanim. Um, when he meets, it's going to be Betuel and Lavan and say, can Rivka marry Yitzchak? Maybe they'll be worried, and we can relate to this very much today, but they'll never see them again, because Rivka will go to live with Yitzchak. Yitzchak will never leave Eretz Israel. So the Mechotanim, Rivka's parents, will never see her again. So maybe Abraham tells Eliezer that Riv you won't see Rivka and Yitzchak. That's true. But you will see the grandchildren, Kanainahara, and you'll still get Nachas because the grandchildren will pop over. Don't think they are excluded. Problem with that is we don't actually see that this message was conveyed by Eliezer to Betuel. When we get to the retelling of the story that Eliezer has, this, this aspect doesn't feature in it. So I saw a very complicated suggestion that goes like this. 
that Eliezer is aware of the Brit Ben-Avataren because that was sort of currency in Avram's household. And Eliezer knows that it's been foretold that that Abraham's descendants will be in a land that is not theirs. So Abraham's got a descendant. He's only got one at the moment, only one that matters. That's called Yitzchak. So obviously the Brit Ben-Avataren seems to imply to Eliezer that Yitzchak will leave Israel. He will be a stranger in a foreign land. So maybe all this stuff that Abraham's asking me to do will come to nothing because it won't work. I won't be able to find a wife that will come to Yitzchak. At the end of the day, Yitzchak's going to have to go because that's what's been foretold in the Brit Benavataren. To which Avram says, no, 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 don't worry. That's not going to apply to Yitzchak. It will apply to Yaakov. So that perhaps is a little bit convoluted. I would like to suggest for myself that I think that Rashi is doing something a bit different. I, I don't think we need to go into the uh, extremities of of, of, of fitting this into the narrative. I think something else is going on here. What we have here about Yitzchak not leaving Israel is basically a halacha. It's a halacha and it comes, it's a, it's a mitzvah midoraita as it were, because we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself in Perak Kaf Vav Pasuk Bet says to Yitzchak, Vayome al tered mitzrayma, do not go down to Egypt, shachon ba'aretz, Stay in the land. This is Perak Kafvav Pasuk Bet. We talked about this last week. And Rashi there says, Why Altere Mitzrayma? Shahaya Datol Redet Mitzrayim, Kamoshi Red Aviv, Bimeharav. Yitzchak thought of going to Egypt like his father did in the days of the famine. Omar Hashem said to him, Altere Mitzrayma, Shahata Oletamima. You are a perfect burnt offering. That's what you, you're, you were transformed up there on Haha Maria into something that cannot leave Israel. Okay, so it's, in a sense, it's a halacha. Um, it comes from Hagadosh Baruch Hu. And when we come to, so, so therefore, we're actually talking about the halachic part of the Torah. And therefore, we can apply the exegetical rules that apply to the halachic part of the Torah. It seems to me that Abraham is, well, Rashi is, on Abraham's behalf, darshaning a pasuk in the Torah, as we do when, when we come across mitzvot. When a mitzvah says, uh, includes in its formulation, ach, uh, sorry, ach or rak, then we always say, so what's the mirth? What's being excluded? So it seems to me that we can say that Rashi says, you know what Abraham is talking about? He's talking about the halacha. Now, it turns out the halacha is a one-time generation, one generation only thing. So it doesn't apply to us. How do we know it's a one generation only thing? Only because of this, because of the word rak. That rak says it's only for that generation. So it seems to me that Rashi is saying, Let's treat this as a part of the halachic part of the Torah, and let's apply the rules that we normally apply, one of which is, what does, in what, what does Ruck come to exclude? Okay, let's go on to Pasuk Tet. The servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham Adonav, his master, and he swore to him, Al Hadavah Hazer on this thing. No Rashi. Let's move on to Pasuk Yud. The servant took 10 camels. From the camels of his master. And he went. And all the goodness, all the stuff of his master was in his hand. And he got up. And he went to Aram Naharayim El Ir Nachor. To the city of Nahor. Okay, Rashi's got a few things to say. So the first thing is to say, Mikamale Adonav, from the camels of his master. It says Rashi, Nikarin Hayu, they were recognizable. 
Mishar Gamaliel. They were distinctive from other camels. That means Abraham's camels were different from others' camels. Shahayu Yotzeim Zumamim, because they went, sorry, Zumumim, they went muzzled, Mipnei Hagezel, in case of theft. In other words, Shalo Yiru Basadat Acherim, so they should not graze in other people's fields. So, why does Rashi say this? Okay, let's, let's deal with that one straight away. Because the words migamale adonav are superfluous. Eliezer took camels. Where else did he get camels from? He didn't have his own camels. He's a servant stroke slave. He's not going to go to the marketplace and take somebody else's camels. He's obviously taking Abraham's camels. So why does it say migamale adonav? And the answer actually works very nicely. Um, it's, it's because Migamalea Adonav means they were distinctively Abraham, Abrahamatic camels. What makes them Abrahamatic camels? So we know that Abraham, Abraham, sorry, was um, so concerned about even the slightest bit of impropriety, um, especially Bein Adam Lechavero. Um, we know that, according to Rashi, the argument between Abraham shepherds and Lot shepherds about was whether um, Lot shepherds had a claim that they could graze their field uh, cattle on other people's uh, land. Uh, Abraham says no, even though Abraham's been promised that the entire land will be his. Um, Abraham says no, the shepherds can't do that. And that's why Abraham and Lot have to separate because if there's a slightest hint of improper behavior, that can't be under Abraham's household. So similarly here, Abraham's camels were the sort of camels that were distinctive because Abraham was so concerned about even just the possibility of gezel, of theft, that his camels were muzzled. That's what's distinctive about them. Some of the Mephoshim talk about, or the Gemara actually, talks about the comparison between Abraham and Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair is a Tana. Um, he's the author of the uh, Breiter, which is the foundation of Masila Yasharim the various um, characteristics that Masul Sharon goes through um, and the hierarchy thereof. You start with Zerizus and then you get to Nikias and so on. I think that's right. Um, that comes from the brighter of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Um, but the relevant part of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair is the following story, that he had a donkey and somebody wanted to feed the donkey with food that hadn't been tithed, hadn't had Truma Masa taken, and the donkey refused to eat it because that was the nature of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair's donkey. And the Gemara actually says that his donkey was better than Abraham's camels, because Abraham's camels needed to be muzzled. Why didn't Abraham's camels, if they were the camels belonging to a tzaddik like Abraham Avinu, also automatically get protected from even the danger of stealing pasture from other people's fields? So you can answer this in many ways, and people do answer this in many ways. Uh, and one answer is that Abraham didn't want to rely on a nace. Um, he didn't want to rely on his camels miraculously doing the right thing. But perhaps a better answer is Abraham wanted to demonstrate. And Abraham's whole life was demonstrating the right way to behave in this world. So he wanted to show people that you should make sure your camels don't graze in other people's fields. Or if they do, they don't take any pasture from other people's fields. So you put the muzzles on the camels. Then Rashi says on the words, Bechol tuv Adonav biyado. All the good of his master was in his hand. So which Rashi says, Shtar matana katab al kol A document of giving everything to Yitzchak, he wrote on all his property, 
Pitan. So people should literally jump to send to him their daughter. So what, what's happened is that Avram writes a document that says, I give everything to Yitzchak. And that document, although Russia doesn't spell it out, is in the hand of Eliezer. And that's what it means, kol tuv adunav biyado. It was all in his hand. Why does Rashi explain this? Because you might have thought that somehow all the property of, Ar of Abraham is put into the hand of Eliezer. And you might wonder how this could be, because Eliezer's hand is not that big. And how could it fit all of Abraham's property in it? Uh, you could say that Abraham sold all his property for money or for precious stones, which were very valuable and they fit in his hand. And I think there is a Midrash that says that, but that's not Rashi. Um, it's interesting, by the way, that here you have a very uh, interesting example where the pshat is not as literal as the literal reading. Um, I often give the example in English. You can, um, you can distinguish between mashma'ut, which is the literal meaning, and pshat, which is the simple meaning. We often translate pshat as the literal meaning. It's not necessarily so. In English, what does one's brother-in-law mean? Brother-in-law is the person married to one's sister or the brother or one's wife, either way. It does not mean my brother in a legal sense, a brother-in-law. It's an idiom. And when we use that phrase, we know exactly what it means. And what does it actually mean? It means my wife's brother or my sister's husband. It does not mean somebody who in a legal sense is my brother. It doesn't mean that. So even though the literal meaning is my brother in a legal sense, that's not the actual meaning. Here, biyado, the literal meaning of biyado is all the property is in his hand, but that's not what it actually means. So what Rashi, Rashi, Mr. Pshat, and he's fulfilling his mission here as being Mr. Pshat, is telling you is what the word means, but no, it's not the same as the literal meaning. Okay, next thing to say uh, in a different vein is how can Abraham give all of his property to Yitzchak? There are laws of inheritance. You cannot say that I want one son to inherit everything and another son to inherit nothing. And at this point, Abraham had another son. Uh, he's going to have more sons. So how can he write a document saying everything goes to Yitzchak? So the answer perhaps to this is if we look in Perakaf Aleph at the words of Sarah, in Perakaf Aleph, Hosat Yud, Sarah says, Send away this maidservant, referring to Hagar, and her son, referring to Yishmael. And we always read it as saying she doesn't want Yishmael to be around Yitzchak. He's a bad influence. But what she's actually saying is she doesn't want Yishmael to inherit anything. And two pasukim later, in Pasuk Yudbet, Everything that Sarah says, listen to her voice. Because in Yitzchak will be called your descendants. So in other words, if Abraham has got a problem with letting one child inherit everything, Hashem has given his haskama, his approval of such an arrangement. When Sarah says, I don't want anyone sharing the inheritance of Yitzchak, Hashem 
later, says, listen to her voice and do everything she says. So Hashem has indeed said that everything should go to Yitzchak. So that would explain why Abraham has the right to say everything belongs to Yitzchak, to write it in a document and put that document in the hand of Eliezer. And then Rashi has another comment, which I'm trying to find something interesting and exciting and deep to say, but I can't find. Uh, there's a couple more coming up like that. Aram Naharayim. That is the place that is the city of Nahor. Now, Aram Naharayim is, if you like, the full name for what's normally called Aram, um, which we translate, by the way, as Mesopotamia. Uh, it means Syria, possibly bits of Iraq, but basically Syria. Uh, the, the Fertile Crescent went from uh, Babylon, Iraq, your way, up round through Syria and down to uh, Israel. Um, and that bit in the middle, so between Babylon on the one side, Israel on the other, is Mesopotamia. Um, and that's called Aram. But the full name, if you like, Abraham gives it here is Aram Naharaya. What does Naharaya mean? Rivers. Two rivers. It's that interesting classical Hebrew form with the jewel, which means not one and not more than two, but two rivers. So it says Rashi, Bein Shtei Naharot Yoshevet. It, it lives between, it dwells between two rivers. The rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are the two rivers that sort of define that whole area. So Aram Naharaim is called Aram Naharaim because it dwells between those two rivers. So um, this is like a straightforward Rashi. And uh, I often say that um, maybe Rashi is just telling you what the word means. Um, the next Rashi is going to, I think, do that. But I'm a little bit bothered here because we probably could have worked out what Aram Naharaya means without Rashi telling us. But maybe Rashi is giving us the geography. Uh, Rashi assumes it's his readers, I think, don't understand geography because Rashi's readers didn't have maps or anything like that or a knowledge of the area. So maybe that's why Rashi needs to spell out that Aram Naharaya is called Aram Naharaya because it's between two rivers. Pasuk Yud Aleph says, Vayavrech Hagamalim. So he, well, let's look at, let's uh, go straight to Rashi on the words, says Rashi, means he made them lie down, or possibly he made them kneel, which is actually what means. Uh, and uh, it's probably that the word he made them kneel is related to the word which means knees. Because when you kneel, you kneel on your knees. Or when you start to get your camels lying down, they start by kneeling and they go on their knees. Um, so again, um, you could possibly say that Rashi needs to say this for the sake of the story, because these camels are about to be watered. So they're in a sort of ready for watering position. Possibly Rashi's saying uh, that's what's happening and he's sort of providing the narrative link. Or simply he's telling you that the word Bayabrech means um, on the basis that we have to assume that Rashi assumed that his readers would not be familiar with that word. So that, let's just finish off Pasuk uh, Yud Aleph. I'll start again. He made the camels lie down outside the city. El Be'er Hamayim, to the well of water. Le'et Erev, towards the evening. Le'et Seit HaShoavot. The time of the coming out of the water drawers. So remember, the well is the central place. It's the place where everyone hangs out. That's where you go to find a wife. Who else finds a wife at a well? Yaakov and Moshe Rabbeinu meets Sipora at the well. The well is the place you hang out. It's the town square. It's, it's the central place. I once taught this 
that idea to my students many, many years ago. And somebody said, so maybe we should stand by the tap now and our shirts will come along, which is quite oh, cute. Um, uh, I also saw an interesting idea that we, well, we know what's coming. Eliezer is going to identify one of these water drawers as uh, uh, the, who's got the right midot to be the uh, woman in question. Um, he finds a place where they're acting not at home, not with someone telling them what to do, but outside the house where their true character comes, comes through. Uh, no more Rashi on that, nor on Yudbet, the Yomar. And he said, interestingly, the note on the word the Yomar is a shalshelet, um, which means it takes a long time to say. Um, and uh, people want to say that a shalshelet occurs where the person being described is wavering. Um, when Yosef was tempted by um, uh, yeah, uh, Potiphar's wife, there's a Shoshelet, when um, Lot uh, was wondering, was, was like tarrying a little bit before he comes out of um, Saddam, there's a Shoshelet. And here there's also a Shoshelet, um, and maybe Eliezer's sort of not 100% sure that he wants this to be successful. As he says, Rashi, I'll mention this now, even though Rashi doesn't say anything on this bus, but he does say later on that Eliezer had a daughter and he hoped that his daughter would be the one to marry Yitzchak. Anyway, Vayomar, he said, Hashem, God, Elokei Adoni Abraham, the God of my master of Abraham, hakre na lefanai hayom, let it please happen before me today, chesed im Adoni Abraham, and do kindness with my master Abraham. So I'm, I, Eliezer, am setting up in my mind a test to identify the right person, and I want, I'm asking you, Hashem, to assist with this process. And that will be a chesed with my master, with Abraham. So what is the test? Behold, I am standing by the well of water. And the daughters of the men of the city, Mayim, are coming out to draw water. No Rashi on that. And it will be or maybe let it be, if it's exaltative, if it's part of his request to Hashem. Let it be that the woman, the, the girl, who to whom I say to her, Hati na kadech, incline please your pitcher, jug, the eshter, and I can drink, the amra, and she will, will say, shetei, drink, the gam gamalecha ashker, and also your camels, I will water. Ota, her, hochachta la'avdecha. You have, uh, Rashi tells us what hochachta is, but I'll tell you now, you have identified her, you have proved that she's the one for your servant, Yitzchak, to Yitzchak, uva. And in it, or in her, a da, I will know, ki asita chesed im adoni, that you have done favor, you have done kindness with my master. Okay, so that's the deal. That's the setup of the test. He's going to say to a na'ara, a maiden, um, let me have a drink. And she will say, you have a drink and all your camels can have a drink. And we know, because I think this is a very, very well-known incident, that 10 camels drink a lot. So it's a big deal for her to offer to water 10 camels. And if she does, she's obviously a good person. Now let's look carefully at Rashi. Rashi on your dialect, on the words ota, you, she, you will have clarified, identified, proved. He lo. She is fitting for him. 
Shitahei, now there's two versions of Rashi, or there's often two versions of Rashi, but there's two quite um, common versions of Rashi. Either Shitahei, that she will be, or Shahi, that she is. What one have you got in the Masara Cook? And what have you got in an article? Okay. Um, she will be Gomelet Chasodim, a doer of kind deeds. And she is worthy or suitable to enter into the household of Abraham. Now, it's interesting that um, there's two parts to what Rashi says that Eliezer says. Number one, Ra'uya he lo, Shadahe Gomelet Chasodim, now, we will see from what happens later, and it's also said explicitly in the next line of Rashi, that there really is two elements that Eliezer is looking for. Number one, and this is his own chiddush, if you like, to set up this test, that she is a gomelet chasodim, she's a kind person. And number two, there is a requirement that... Um, Abraham gave him, although he didn't actually say it explicitly, but we'll see from later on in the story, Eliezer says as if he did, and presumably he did, namely that she should come from Abraham's family. Um, when Abraham said, Ki el el you should go to my land, to my birthplace, Rashi didn't say that. Um, no, Rashi said, he didn't talk about Maladati. Um, no, Rashi at this point doesn't say that Abraham has said she has to come from his family, but when Eliezer tells the story, as he's going to tell the whole story, um, he implies that that was a criteria. Eliezer certainly makes it out to be a criteria, as we will see. So it is a, it is a criteria. Um, it could be that that's why the double expression occurs here in Rashi. Number one, that her character is that she's a doer of kind deeds and therefore she is fitting for him. And there's another thing, that she's fitting to enter the house of Avram because she satisfies criteria number two. I'm not 100% sure that that's what's going in a Rashi, but I think it could be. Then Rashi says, just to tell you the word, you have either selected or clarified um, Afruvish Balaz, um, improve, I think, in love, in French, uh, which means to prove, as in to indicate, as in to determine that this is the one. Continues Rashi, Uva Eda. And with this, I will know. So if you go back to the Pasuk, let's look. Um, first of all, he says that she'll feed all the camels. And then he says, Uva Eda ki asita chesed im adoni. Now Rashi says in the words, Va Eda, this is an expression of um, supplication. It's like a tefillah. In other words, don't read this as I will know, but rather let it be that I will know. It's still part of his request to Hashem. Um, why doesn't it mean I will know? Because Eliezer can't say that I will know everything just on the basis of this test alone. Um, it's there's a whole discussion in the Roshonim, uh, which I don't want to get into because Rashi doesn't get into it, except possibly here maybe, that how could Eliezer um, do an act of divination, of setting up a test, and if she passes the test, then she's the one. Because we're told in the Torah 
that that's actually asur. It's, it's a midoraiter to say, oh, um, you know, a cat crossed my path, therefore it's going to be a good day. That is actually forbidden. Um, uh, horoscopes, if you take them seriously, which you shouldn't because they're nonsense, um, would be actually forbidden. There's a uh, mitzvah, um, Hashem you shall be perfect with Hashem, your God, which means you don't look at horoscopes and you don't look at um, portents and uh, cats crossing your path or anything like that. Or you don't say, well, if this woman answers, says, I'll feed your camels, she's definitely the one. So Rashi doesn't relate to this. A lot of other people do, but it could be actually that he does in this word here when he says Loshan Tuchina. It doesn't mean that I will know, but he's still asking Hashem to let me know. And Hashem will let me know if she passes the other criteria, which actually is more indicative. Because, um, continues Rashi, Loshan Tuchina, it's an expression of uh, supplication. Hoda Li, please let me know. I added the please. To make it clear that it's a prayer. Let me know ba of her ki asita chesed that you have done kindness im if she is from his family and fitting for him. Then eida ki asita chesed. I will know that you have done chesed. So basically, if she waters the camels and turns out to be from Abram's family, then that will be the chesed that you, Hashem, have done. If you send the right girl, i.e. the one from Abraham's family, and she passes my test, then that's the chesed that you will have done. So Rashi wants to make clear that Eliezer is not saying that based on a test alone, I will know, but let me know. That's why he says, but there's more information that Hashem will then provide through some means. Um, why does Rashi say Loshan Tchina and not Loshan Tfila? Why does he say it's a supplication and not a prayer? Possibly because what is a Tchina? What is Tachnun? What is Chinam? What does Chinam mean? Right. For free. The difference between a, a Tfila and Tchina is that Tchina is asking something either very, very exceptional in its sort of value, um, which I don't deserve, or just something I don't deserve. I'm asking for something for free. Um, I'm not sure, but this is my idea, but I think that's in what we call what we call Tachnan. Because what do we say when we say Tachnan? We say, I'm completely worthless. I, I'm worth nothing. That's what the message of Tachnan is. It's, it's really quite depressing, Tachnan. I'm desperate for Hashem's help because I'm useless on my own. In other words, I, it, when you say Tachnan, it is not an expression of merit. It's not an expression of deserving anything. It's asking for Hashem even though I don't deserve anything. That's why it comes after the Shemana Esrei. Shemana Esrei is a tefillah. And we say, Hashem, look, please give me things. And we don't say, I deserve them. But that's, we don't say, I don't either. Then after the Shemona Esrei, we fall on our faces and we say, listen, basically, Hashem, I've got nothing. I deserve nothing. Um, please um, help me. And that's also the end of Avinu Makeno. Chaneinu va'aneinu. Favor us, give us chain, because we don't deserve it. Ki ein banu ma'asim. That's chaneinu va'aneinu. So Eliezer is asking for something really special. Um, if you think about it, Avram sent him on this difficult mission. It's going to be complicated. He's going to have to like go through dating agencies to find the right girl. He's going to have to interview thousands of people. So what does he say? He says, listen, I've just arrived. I've been here a minute. How about, Hashem, you send me the girl right now, right, straight away. And I'll just ask her one question. She'll give the right answer. And that's it. So he's really asking for a very, very great deal. And... He doesn't say explicitly, he doesn't deserve it, but he hasn't got much merit to rely on. 
Um, so maybe because of sort of the imbalance of the reward against the, uh, what he's putting into the deal, that makes it a tachina rather than a tefila. Okay, let's move on to Pasuk Tetvav. Vayihi hu terem kila ledaber, and it was he, before he'd finished speaking, vehine rifka yotzet. Rifka appeared, um, she came out, so Hashem fulfills his prayer immediately, even before he'd finished formulating the prayer, then appears Rivka. Asher yulda lebetuel ben milka eshet nachor achi Abraham. Who, or whom, sorry, who had been born to Betuel, the son of Milka, the wife of Nachor, uh, the brother of Abraham. I don't know exactly why we need all that, Yechus. Um, and I don't know why Ben Milka is there. We don't normally name people after their mothers. In this case, uh, Betuel is identified as the son of his mother, who is the wife of Nachor, who is the brother of Abraham. Okay, that's who she is. The Chada al Shikma and her jug or pitcher. I hesitate to say pitcher because we don't normally ever say that word. Uh, who, do you ever say pass the pitcher in your house? No. no. Okay, so I'm going to say jug because it's the word I'm used to, but you can think of it as like those big earthenware jugs which are called pitcher. Anyway, the jug was on her shoulder. Okay, no Rashi, but this is the, the introduction of the new character um, who's going to play a pivotal role in Jewish history thereafter. Here, how, how she appears. Vanahara tovat mare ma'od, the woman, the girl, was very good of appearance. Betula, she was a virgin. The ish lo and no man had known her, i.e. had had relations with her. The teret ha'anya, she went down to the fountain, the timale kada betaal, and she filled her jug and ascended. Okay, what's the obvious question? Okay. So this Rashi is a little bit awkward for me to explain in public, but we'll do it. Um, so the obvious question is, if she's a patula, why does it say ishlo yada'a? Those are the same thing. Um, so it's a very clear question of why the apparent repetition? Why is it two things which seem to say the same thing? So Rashi is going to say, as he often does, they don't say the same thing. They say two separate things. So patula, mimakom batulim. So she was a virgin from the place of her betulim, her sign of virginity, her hymen. The ish lo yada'a, when it says no man had known her, that can't mean in the normal way of relations, but rather it's shaloka darka, in the unnatural way, uh, anally. Uh, which from now on I'll just say shaloka darka, which is the more polite way that Chazal say it. So um, she was a virgin in, in both senses, of, uh, of the nature of sexual relations. Now, um, Rashi now has to explain something else because there seems to be a sensitivity that shaloka daraka, the unnatural way, is um, even less likely than the natural way. In other words, if she hasn't had relations kadarka, it would be very unlikely we would assume that she'd have relations shaloka daraka. I think there's a sensitivity that one comes before the other. So Rashi has to explain why the Torah puts them the other way around. Not only is she a Betula in the Kadarka way, she's also Betula in the low Kadarka way, which you might have thought is the other way around. So Rashi says, Lefisha benot hakana'anim, the daughters of the Canaanites, hayu meshamrot makom betulehen, 
they would guard the place of their petulim. In other words, they would refrain from relations in the normal way. Uh, so they would be virgins. But they would render themselves free in, from a different place. In other words, they would indulge in unnatural relations. So that's why it would have been normal for someone to be a betula, but nevertheless to have had relations shalokadarka. So it would be normal to say this, the people of this area, she's a betula, but ish yada'a, but a man has known her. So Rashi says, heid alzu, but it testifies, the posse testifies on this one, this person, shehina kia nikol, she is innocent, she is clean, she is uh, protected from all types. So you might say, you read that she's a betula, but knowing the culture of that place and knowing the customs of that place, you might say, ah, she's a betula, but maybe ishyada'a in a shalokadarka manner, says, says that Rashi says the Pasuk, no, not only is she betula, but she, unlike other girls of that place, she was also ishloyada'a in the shalokadarka way. Okay, let's move quickly on to the next Pasuk. Vayorat ha'eved likrota. The servant ran to meet her. Vayoma, and he said, Hagmi'ini na ma'at mayim mikadech. Let me, well, Rashi is going to tell us what Hagmi'ini is, uh, but I'll tell you, it means let me swallow, please, a little water from your jug. Says Rashi, Vayarat ha'eved likrata. The servant ran towards her. Lefi shara'a sha'alu ha'mayim likrata. Because he saw that the water went up towards her. So Rashi, quoting Midrashim, has no problem assuming miracles happen here, there, and everywhere. And Rivka is the sort of Sadekis who deserves to have miracles happening. Um, and Eliezer notices that the, she doesn't have to bend down to the water, the water comes up to her. Who, whom else did the water come up to? Yaakov. Uh, 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 no, we've seen that the water of the wells came up to Abraham when he had an argument with the Plishtim about who had dug the wells. And the fact that the waters came up, this is Rashi, proved that they belonged to Abraham. And I think Yaakov, uh, the waters of the Nile came up to Yaakov. So it, it's a sign that somebody's, uh, uh, somebody's a good guy. Now, why does Rashi say this? Why does Rashi need to add this detail? So the problem, the answer um, is Vayarats. Why did he run? He didn't need to run. He's standing there by the well. Rivka's arrived. So he's, he doesn't say explicitly that he's about to speak to Rivka, but that's the main, that's what comes after. He doesn't need to run. He could have walked over to Rivka. Um, so why did he run? So it must be that something encouraged him to run. Something inspired him to run. He must have seen something that made him run. I think maybe he ran because he, he wouldn't walk because if he knew it was her, wouldn't he have wanted to do it straight away? But how do you know it was her? Because he saw the water ascending, as you said. Ah, okay, that's the answer. Yeah, exactly. so once we know that we see that he ran, so Rashi's got to give a reason why he ran. Correct. Answer is, he saw it wasn't just that she was a pretty girl, uh, perhaps I'll ask her for the water and see what happens, but he saw that she was endowed with some miraculous um, benefits, so Hashem must be indicating that she's pretty special. I guess, I guess, yeah, I think maybe your question was, it sounded like, why did he run that walk? And my question is, why did he run, why did he move in the first place? Because he wouldn't have known. Ah, okay, but, well, uh, okay. As in, would he have known before? If well, the water didn't ascend, he wouldn't have known, he hadn't, the test hasn't been passed yet, so. Uh, okay, but maybe, and this is going to be contradictive what I'm about to say, but maybe he would have walked, uh, He. Uh, this is the well, 
he's there, she's there, he would have walked to her and said, excuse me, can you give me a drink? Uh, give me a drink. That's the first thing he says. But he runs to her, which he doesn't need to. So Rashi says the reason why he runs. Or you could say possibly, and it's interesting, Rashi's is likrata. So someone to say, Rashi's medayek, uh, he's precise because of the word likrata. So she's at the, he's at the well. She's at the well. Contrary to what I just said a moment ago, they're standing next to each other. Why does he have to move at all towards her? So, ah, that, so it's a similar question. It's a different question, but with a similar direction. Same answer. He yeah, moves towards her because he's so excited by the evidence of the um, waters rising to her. So maybe it's why did he run or maybe why did he move towards her? Why does the Torah stress that he moved towards her when they're both standing at the same well? And by the way, there is also a clue that she is able to get to the water without bending down. Because if we look in Pasuk Tet Zion, uh, she filled her jug. What does it not say? Well, let me give you a clue. It does actually say um, in Pasuk Kaf, which we're going to get to soon, to draw and she drew water for all the camels. So what's the difference between drawing water and just filling the jug? So maybe because it says here, the Timale, she filled a jug, that means she didn't have to bend down. Why didn't she have to bend down? Because the waters came up. So in which case, then the question now becomes, why didn't, why did she have to bend down in Pasuk Kaf? So maybe the answer to that is miracles don't happen all the time. So it was a one-off miracle. And, um, it didn't happen the next time. But actually, that's actually very nice. I don't think that's too far-fetched to be the explanation of what's going on here. Because again, we have a difference between the verb describing filling the jug in Pasuk Tet Zion and the verb describing filling the jug in, or, or filling, drawing water in Pasuk Kaf. Why is there a difference? Maybe there was a different process. Maybe the first process for Timale was because the water was rising to her and she didn't have to bend down. She just filled the jug. So maybe because the Timale was for her, maybe... She's used to miracles for the camels, maybe better. Yeah, so, well, I was actually thinking that I just said it. Maybe you get miracles when you feed people or you feed her she deserves, yeah. for sheep, but you don't get miracles to feed somebody else's camels. It's very Abrahamic. Like it, it reads a lot like the start of Vayera. Um, the because it's the same trait, it's the same character trait of, yeah, of, of Chesed. It's just replete with the Tema hair and Tarat and Vayera. Ah, very like, good. Very good. Yes, uh, I, I actually had noticed that, but I see it now. You make it very clear. Yes. Is that mean like towards towards her? Okay. Nothing to do with calling, Okay, so the next Rashi is on the words Hagmi Inni Na. So Rashi says, Loshan Gemia. It's an expression of Gemia. Isn't it just a grammatical form of Gemia? No, because it's a different spelling. Gemia with an iron is Rashi saying it's, this is an expression of gimi'ah with an ayin, but it's actually gimi'ah with an aleph. But basically, again, I'm gonna say this is a straightforward Rashi, he's telling you that the two words are equivalent. There's actually a discussion in Gemara about whether they're equivalent or not, because Gemara has one of these, it goes off on, on, on a tangent, because uh, how do we spell the word? Sometimes does this, uh, one word appears in the Mishnah and then the Amorayim say it should be spelled this way, no, it should be spelled that way. Um, and Rashi is concluding his uh, conclusion of the, 
um, Talmudic dispute there, that they are the same word. So when you see the word Hagimi'ini with an Aleph, and you're not familiar with it, Rashi says, don't worry, it's the same as Gimi'ah with an Ayin, which we know means swallow. So let me swallow, please, is what Hagimi'ini means. Yeah, I think it's the same. You're right. I also saw Sip. Uh, is that what you got there? Yeah. 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 Um, maybe, maybe that's better. Maybe swallows bala. Um, I, it's the same motion. I, I'm, I'm sure I've learned it as swallow, but maybe sip is more precise. And just quickly again, we've, we've had a similar word. I remember coming the exact word, but Rashi has said before that, oh, this is the same word, and he provides the example. I think Kesev and Keves is brought before his life, meaning the same thing that sometimes you can move letters around. Sometimes. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it's not quite, it's, it, he doesn't prove it by saying, yeah, I can yeah. find other examples, yeah. but he's basically saying, um, uh, he's saying pretty explicitly, actually, yeah. they are the same word, yeah. or they're the same sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Aleph and Ayan are slightly interchangeable. Sure. I'm just reminded, though, that the Gemara says that somebody who can't pronounce the difference between an Aleph and an Ayan is not allowed to lane from the Torah, which is an interesting question for all Ashkenazim. <laughs> um, Presumably, when Ashkenazim do not ever pronounce the difference between an aleph and an ayin, which of course is a guttural, it comes from the back of the throat, um, then um, we seem to have overridden that halacha. Uh, do you know how to pronounce an ayin properly? Shamrach Yisrael. What's the diminutive form of Yaakov in sort of some yeshiva circles? Well, what does diminutive form mean? Like with the nickname that comes from Yaakov. Yisrael. No. Oh, that's, that's not a nickname. Okay, what I'm thinking of is Yankee. Okay, where does the N come from in Yankee? And the answer is that's the Ashkenazi attempt to pronounce the I in. So Yaakov becomes Yankov. Anyway, that was a bit of a transgression there, a bit of a digression. But it fitted from Rashi saying this Aleph and this I in are the same word. Pasuk Yud Chet. Um, so so we've, we've seen that the test is started in Yud Zion. Um, he said, let me sip a little water from your pitcher, from your jug. And she says, drink, Adoni, my master. And she hurried, just like Abraham did when he provided hospitality, which fits very, very well, by the way, Sarah, because she is going to be the next generation of Abraham's household. And later on, we all know she's going to take the place of Sarah. So it very much fits that she shows the same attributes as Abraham did. But Timaher, she hurried, but Tered Kada, and she lowered her pitcher, her jug, Al Yada, on her hand, Tashkehu, and she gave him to drink. And Rashi says, But Tered Kada, me al Shikma, from on her shoulder. Um, what's Rashi answering? Simple question, but it's a, it's a question that needs answering. She lowers her pitcher from a high place to a low place. She's not filling the picture at the moment. That's, it's filled, okay? It was filled in Pasuk Tetzayim. It's about to be emptied and be refilled, but that's not what she's doing right now. So she lowers her picture from where to where? He's standing next to her. He says, can I have a drink? So what does it mean, the Tered Kada? Answer, it was on her shoulder. So she takes it down from her shoulder and that's what the Tered mean. Tered means taking it down. So Rashi's got to explain, it came from a high place to a low place. Uh, jumping the gun here. Uh, Rashi's comment about Rivka being three years old. If she was three years old and she's lower, like, she, I don't know if that's um, how big she is. Three. Anyway, we don't okay, interesting enough, we all know that Rashi calculates that she's three. 
And there's no getting away from that because in Pasha told her, it says that she waited 20 years, 10 years till she was 13 and, and ready to bear children and another 10 years of infertility. So there's no doubt why she says she was three. It's also worth noting that Rashi doesn't mention that anywhere in this parrot. So at no point does Rashi say, this little three-year-old was doing the following. So it's still the case that I suppose from a three-year-old shoulder to a three-year-old's waist is a descent. Yeah. Maybe she was a very tall three-year-old. She was certainly a very mature three-year-old in the way she behaved. Pasuk Yudtet. Vatachal, sorry, Vatachal Lahashkoto. She finished to water him. Vatomer, and she said, Gam ligmalecha, also for your camels, Eshav, I will draw ad imkilu lishtot until they have finished to drink. Okay, so bingo, she's passed the test. She's done exactly what Eliezer wanted the identified woman to do. And it's amazing that she said uh, it's a very, very big deal, as we said earlier, that to feed 10 camels is a big deal. He didn't ask her to feed 10 camels, but she's so willing to perform chesed, but that's what she's prepared to do. But Rashi wants us to understand the slightly odd phrase, ad im kilu, until if they finished. What is until if they finished? So Rashi says it's not until if they finish, because that makes no sense. Hare im meshamesh veloshan asher. The word im here means the expression of asher. Now, what does asher mean? It means that or which, but that doesn't really help. Ad im kilu means ad asher kilu, until which they'd finished. But better still, although I think, I think Altskra might say it translates as which, but I think it means asher, as in ka asher, as in when. So ad im kilu means until when they finished, which makes perfect sense. And Rashi doesn't say he, yeah, but he says elsewhere that im can take on many meanings. Uh, he says it actually in our, this week's parasha, im ishpatim, im kesef talveh, if you lend. doesn't mean if you lend, it means when you lend, because you have to lend to poor people. Um, perhaps a good example is in um, the Midbar, Perak, Lamad Vav, Pasuk Dalad, which says, the im yihiyah hayovel, livnei Yisrael, and if there will be a jubilee year, then this will, such and such will happen. What's the problem with that? Of course it's gonna be a jubilee year. Of course it's gonna be a yovel. So that im doesn't mean if, it means when. It means when there will be a yovel, this will happen. Pamidba Lamadvav Pasuk Dalad. That's all I wanted to say, but there's actually many, many other examples. That happens to be a clear one. That im cannot mean if, that one it's explicit, but it can't mean if. There are other places where it could mean if, but it doesn't make sense to mean if, but it doesn't have to mean if, it can mean when. So that's right. what Rashi says. It read ad im kilo, but uh, mean it's until when they have finished. Now, next Rashi is on the meaning of the word kilo. And he says, targem unculus dai sapkun. Dai sapkun. What does dai sapkun mean? What does sapek mean? Enough. Enough. Until it's enough. Shazu he gamashtiatan. That is the completion of their drinking. Keshatu, keshashatu, de sipukan. When they have drunken enough. As opposed to, what does kilu normally mean? Finish. finish. What does finish mean? It's, it's all gone. And onkelos normally translate kala as shitse, meaning destroyed or finished or completely ended. 
And here he does, and Rashi's pointing us to that. Rashi realizes, Rashi's sensitive to the fact that Unculus uses a different word from his normal translation of killer because, says Rashi, this is not the normal meaning of killer. It doesn't mean they drank until all the water was finished, because that wouldn't be natural. That's not what camels do. They drank until they were no longer thirsty and then they stopped drinking. Apparently, that's what camels do, and that's what Rashi wants to tell us. Pasuk kaf. V'tamaher. She hurried again. V'ta'ar kada el hashoket. And she, um, well, Rashi's going to tell us what ta'ar means. Let's go straight to Rashi. Loshan nefitza. It means nefitza. If you look at Unculus, um, he translates pasuk kaf. First couple of words, v'achichat, she lowered. Unafatzat, which means she poured. Okay, so nefitza means pour. And we'll see how Rashi explains that in just a moment. And she poured her jugs into the shoket, which Rashi will also tell us what it is. And she ran again to the well to draw. And she drew for all of his camels. So Rashi on the Ta'ar is a linguistic Rashi. And he's telling you what the word means. And he brings sources to tell you what the word means. And his choice of sources is interesting, as it always is. So, bata'ar, what does it mean? It's a word you might be unfamiliar with. Loshan nefitza is an expression of pouring. So, the positive means she poured her jug, she's filled the jug, and now she pours it into the shoket, which Rashi's going to tell us what it is. And says on this word, Loshan nefitza, harber yesh Loshan mishnah. There are many uses of this word in the language pardon me, of the Mishnah. For instance, one who pours from a vessel to a vessel. So there, it's one of the many uses, says Rashi in the Mishnah. It clearly means pouring. What else can you do from one vessel to another? It obviously means pouring. And in scripture, there is similar to it. So in Tehillim, it says, now, if you look up a translation of Tehillim Kuf Memalif, you will see, don't cast away my soul. It's a plea, don't give up on me. But Rashi says, why, why does it mean don't cast away my soul? Don't mean, it's like don't pour away my soul. And another example, um, similar idea that you have cast away my soul to death. You've, again, you've given up on me. Which Rashi is saying is, is a sort of idea of pouring away my soul. Now, um, three questions, and they've all got the same answer. Number one, why does Rashi need to say this at all? Number two, why does Rashi tell you about the Mishnah before he tells you about the Tanakh? We're learning Tanakh here. So surely it would be more relevant to find a, a comparative example as a proof text in the same book, which is the Tanakh, before you go to the Mishnah. And number three, why, as you sort of heard my difficulty, does Rashi quote two Pasukim where it means something to do with a bit of a stretch of the imagination pouring and not an explicit pouring? And the answer to all three is the same, because there aren't any other examples in Tanakh where it clearly means pouring. Um, with the aid of a one-click concordance, I was able to confirm that, and there aren't, okay? There simply aren't. Um, so, that's why, number one, you might not know what the word means, because you're not going to be familiar with this word. This is a rare word. Um, 
this, by the way, is always a problem when we're learning a Hebrew text, we come with an English mindset and it says, you know, okay, para means poor. So our pro we now say, okay, so what's the problem? It means poor. But Rashi is speaking to somebody who approaches it from the Tanakh in Hebrew, doesn't find a similar word, doesn't know what the word means. Second point is why he quotes the Mishnah before the Tanakh, because in the Mishnah, it's clear. In the Mishnah, it clearly means poor. In the Tanakh, it doesn't. So that's why he says, let's look at the Mishnah first. There's many examples there. And then he, he can't avoid finding an example in the Tanakh. If there's no examples in the Tanakh, then he's got a poor case as to what this means. So he finds two examples where they, they've got some sort of sense of it, because to be honest, that's the best he can do. And then finally, on this pastor, and finally to, for tonight, he says, Hashoket. Again, um, maybe it's my lack of creativity, or maybe we've had a lot of uh, more pedestrian rushes tonight. This one, I think, is pedestrian. It tells you what a shoket is, because again, a shoket is not a familiar word. I didn't check in the concordance how often you get a shoket in Tanakh, but I'm going to guess it's rare. So he says a shoket is an even halula, a hollowed out stone, sheshotim ba hagamalim, where the camels drink from it, a sort of trough, but it's a particular type of trough. Um, again, this word certainly does appear in the Mishnah, um, where it's, it's after a stone with a groove in it, and you pour water into the groove, and that's where the camels drink from. So I would suggest that here Rashi, again, is telling you what the word means, because you might be unfamiliar with it. Okay, we will stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.